Bankman Freed's entire house of cards started to crumble as crypto asset prices plummeted in May. This morning, we unsealed an eight count indictment charging Samuel Bankman Freed. I'm Jacob Silverman, host of the new podcast, The Naked Emperor. I'm going to explain how Sam Bankman Freed built and destroyed a multi billion dollar crypto empire. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. He is one of the funniest people in a country that is known for very funny people. He was one of the stars of This Hour Has 22 Minutes and then for 15 seasons hosted his own show, The Rick Mercer Report on CBC television. He has just written a hilarious new memoir about his travels with the show. The book is called The Road Years, and I had the chance to speak with Rick on stage at Glen Gould Studio in Toronto as part of CBC Toronto's Sounds of the Season event last Friday. Here's some of our conversation. How are you, Rick? I'm excellent. Yeah? Yeah, I'm back on the road. I was going to say, do you miss... Part of being on a book tour or having a book out is you get to go on tour and you get to meet people. Yeah. And did you miss that? Uh, I did miss it, but when I wrapped up the Mercer Report, I didn't really have time to sit around and go, wow, my life has changed so much because I'm no longer traveling nonstop because very quickly the entire country stopped traveling and I was just in the same boat with everyone else. And so with this book, I went out on the road. I went to Vancouver, Victoria, Regina, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Halifax, St. John's. Ottawa last night. It's uh, it's great to be back out on the, on the road. This is a book about a lot of things, including the show. What was what was the brief when you tried to create the Mercer Report? What were you trying to do? Well, I, my partner Gerald Lunds and I, we were very fortunate that we got a green light from the CBC to do a show that was called the Untitled Rick Mercer Project. <laughs> that was pretty much it, and we knew what some of the elements would be. I knew that there would be a rant every week. I knew I'd be talking about politics. I knew there would be a comedy element. But Gerald was emphatic that the most important element was going to be the road. Mm. And I was nervous, and he was like, you'll be fine. You'll talk to people. You'll talk to a stump. You can talk to anyone. Just go out and talk to people. And the second element was we decided we were only going to celebrate. And in comedy celebration is not your first instinct. When you're a kid and you get a, a laugh in grade three, it's not by celebrating the teacher, it's about making fun of the teacher. And a lot of great comedy is about making fun of things or tearing things down. But we just said, with this show, for a half hour every week, no matter where we go in the country, we're there to celebrate, we're there to show the people, and we're only positive. And if we don't have anything nice to say, then we're not going. I was going to say, what, what were you looking for when you were on the road? When you were in those in big cities, small towns, what was it that you were looking for? Well, common, there's certain similarities. Like, I love the fact that we went to a mountain town in British Columbia that I had never heard of. They had a winter festival where they would do this death-defying homemade bobsled run down the middle of Main Street. The fire department would turn on the hoses and turn it into a sheet of ice. People got in coffins and went bobsledding and canoes and all of these things. And it was so far removed from my life growing up. But 
everyone I talked to, I was like, oh, I went to high school with this guy. Oh, I know this woman. I, I know. And it reminded me of home, which was way on the other side of the country. So that was what I was looking for every week, not only to show off a part of the country, but hopefully make people connect to it as well. And that happens. I mean, small towns are wild. People do these wild events, throwing chainsaws in the air and death-defying kind of road trips and that kind of thing like that. People celebrate why why they are there. Mm. That's what they do. I mean, my God, do you know how many winter festivals there are in this country? But of course, what kind of country would we be if we didn't celebrate this, this season of ice and snow? I mean, we have to get out in the wild and do it. You can talk to, I mean, I don't know, you can talk to a stump, but you can talk to everybody, right? You can talk to just about anyone. Um, I don't have many skills, but yeah, being able to talk to people, I think, is one of them. I'm literally the person that if I get on the plane and the seat next to me is empty, I'm like, ooh, I hope someone sits in that seat. <laughs> I hope they're chatty. Well, this morning, I got up at 2.45 a.m. at the Chateau Laurier. I had an event there last night. I got on a plane, like, so I'm sitting on a plane at, like, 4.30 quarter to five in the morning, and I found out that the gentleman next to me was a correctional officer, and I asked him questions about being a correctional officer all the way to Toronto, and now it might dawn on me, maybe he wasn't that chatty. <laughs> maybe, he didn't, maybe he didn't want to be interviewed about <laughs> prisons in Canada. But he'll go, he has a story now to tell. Rick Mercer just kept talking to me. The whole, they wouldn't shut up. He just yeah. talked the whole way. A friend of mine, this is a, this, you know, I talk about prime ministers in this book you as do. well, but uh, this is a great story I heard the other day. A friend of mine got on a Porter flight, the Island Airport, downtown Toronto, uh, to Ottawa, and Jean Chrétien came on the flight and sat in the front row, and then the seat next to him was empty, and uh, so my friend thought, oh, he's a former prime minister, they must keep that seat empty, and then... This kid gets on the plane, he's like 18 or 19 wearing a hoodie, and he's getting the seat. And she thought, my God, he mightn't even know who he's sitting next to. But the kid looked at Jean Chrétien and said, hello, Mr. Prime Minister. And then she said, for the entire flight, Chrétien was like, and then Mulroney said to me, and then I said to him, and then, like, and then the Meech Lake Accord, and it was like, it just, he just told stories all the way to Ottawa. What a great story that'll be. When his mother says, how was your flight? <laughs> you said, in the book, you say that, um, that he had kind of the timing uh, and the ability in, in terms of performance of someone like Martin Short. Yeah, it wasn't anything I expected. We went to shoot with Jean Chrétien the first time I did, and I had this idea because I heard him in an interview one time talk about all the different cabinet positions that he had held in his career, and it was a ridiculous amount. Like, he had had them all. And... I asked him, I said, do you know what your cabinet positions were in order? And he was like, of course. And so <laughs> I asked him, I said, I'm going to ask you what your experience is. And you start telling me, and I'm just going to start nodding off. And he was, his comic timing was so good. Like I say, it was like suddenly being on stage with Martin Short or something. It was, it was bizarre. And he's always been known as a great storyteller and uh, always told funny jokes. Stephen Harper, also funny, but Steve, he was, he was. He Somebody in the audience went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you actually heard that. These, these dinners in Ottawa, the press gallery dinners, when um, politicians would make funny speeches, and Stephen Harper always gave the funniest speech, was always self-deprecating, could do impersonations, but then when he became prime minister, he boycotted it, and I was told many times that when the speechwriters would bring him a speech, he would read it, 
and he would circle the lines that were funny or interesting, and he would say to his writers, these are really funny and interesting, take them out now. Because he didn't want to appear as necessarily interesting or funny. What, what's that about? I don't know. I have no idea. But what, it's what, the opposite of Jean Chrétien. But what would have been different, do you think? I've interviewed a lot of politicians, as you have, and getting them to speak like human beings sometimes can be tricky because message track is message track. They have a certain thing that they want to deliver. How have you been able to break through that? But also, what could be different if you saw more of that humanity come out on a regular basis, do you think? It was a kind of a simpler time, even though it wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old. I kind of moved away from it. Um, Justin Trudeau was never on the show as prime minister. Mm. Uh, by the time he became prime minister, I was still on the show, but I just didn't want to have prime ministers on the show anymore because unlike the other prime ministers, he would have done it in a heartbeat, maybe once a week if you <laughs> get away with it. But uh, I just didn't want to, and I didn't want to appear cozy with the liberals at all, so we didn't do it. But I always thought it was a good thing. I mean, there was certainly people when I had Stephen Harper on the show and he went with this gag that he would kill me with kindness. There were people who didn't like that government who were angry with me for making him seem personable. Hey, you softened him up or something? Yeah, like but my argument would be, well, everyone around him says he's fairly personable, so the fact that I somehow managed to glean that out of him, that can't be a bad thing. And so I think a little bit more of that wouldn't be a bad thing. What did you, just the last point on this, what was the place of, of politics in the program, do you think? Well, it was my first love. I only ever had two loves in my life. I mean, subject-wise. Um, you know, <laughs> politics and comedy, and I got to merge them. What I liked about the show was I felt like we were appealing to a broad spectrum of people. And if they didn't like my political point of view during a rant, they could go to the fridge because when they came back, I was going to be in Churchill, Manitoba with the polar bears. And everyone loves polar bears. So the politics were important, but the road was the most important. But you knew what you were doing with those rants too. I mean, you were able to work people up about something that perhaps maybe they wouldn't be paying attention to otherwise or that they might dismiss and you were able to find a funny way into getting them to pay attention. It was a tricky thing. Some weeks it was exactly that. I remember reading when these kids in, I think it was Calgary, uh, they were 16 years old and they went and tried to vote yeah. in a municipal election and they were told no and then they raised money and sued and then they lost and then they went to the Supreme Court where they lost again. And I remember hearing about this going, why isn't this being talked about? And so that was a great opportunity to rant about something like that, to draw attention to what they were doing. Other times, the rant would be obvious. It would be the thing that everyone was talking about that week. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On the road, there was a huge appetite, it seemed like, from your team, but also from us who were watching to see you in great peril. To see you <laughs> at the edge of, of death. Yeah. Where did that come from? It came about by accident. Like, I would, I would always go for it. 
you know, so if I was talking to some people and they were, you know, kayak enthusiasts, I'd say, sure, I'll get in the kayak and try it out. And if it's a professional kayak, you'd fall out of the kayak because it's very hard to maintain balance. But as time went on, we realized people really, really enjoyed seeing me in discomfort. Including people that you worked with, people who were on the team of the program. Oh, yes. They always enjoyed it. And if there was a perceived danger, they loved it. So we called it host in peril. Those segments. The host in peril stuff. So when I got the the beard of bees. um, Actual beard made of bees. Yeah, they, they take a queen bee and they tape it to your neck, basically. And then they slather some sort of pheromone that makes the male bees horny. And then they... And they dump 10,000 bees on a, on a board in front of your face, and then the bees all crawl up on the queen, and then you have a lovely beard. And there's paramedics standing by <laughs> with, like, you know, EpiPens like this. And, uh, yeah, and people would have a great enjoyment out of that. Me, not so much. What did the beard of bees feel like? The beard of bees still haunts me to this day. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And the sound... I was going to say the sound the is... The sound, this... Well, for starters, they... They shove cotton balls up your nose, and then they shove cotton balls deep in your ears, and then they say, whatever you do, don't open your mouth. But you've got cotton balls up your nose. How are you supposed to breathe? So you're, you know, and the bees are on your lips, and the drone through the cotton was quite disconcerting. There was also things like I did the train of death. I was going to say, take us to beautiful, I I know this community, Varney, Ontario. Varney, Ontario. That was actually a tipping point. That's where I thought we had gone too far. (laughs) Because I was taking part in something called the train of death. And in the middle of the train of death, I really thought I was going to die. Now, quickly, the train of death is three cars chained together. The first car has an engine and no brakes. And then there's like 25, 30 feet of chain. The second car has no engine, no brakes. Then there's 30 feet of chain. Then there's the last car where I was that has no engine but does have brakes. And then the cars drive around a track as fast as they can. And anytime I would tap the brakes, which was my instinct, my car would flip around and slam into the side of the other car and then flip around. And I was getting jostled around and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die. And then it dawned on me, I'm going to die doing something called the train of death. Which is a comedy death. But, and you have to explain what a comedy death is. Well, a comedy death is like if you die doing something and you should have known better, it was your own fault. Like people would say, oh my God, he died. That's terrible. What happened? And they'd say, well, he signed up for something called the train of death. <laughs> it's kind of as advertised. <laughs> I remember watching a news anchor report that the president of the exotic pet owners of Canada was eaten by his pet lion in his living room. And watching the news anchor try to report this sad news without laughing, that's what you don't want. You don't want the comedy death. Why did you say yes? I mean, do you have any agency in this at all? Or your people would just say, he's going to go, we're going to zap him with a taser. And, and oh, yes. I had agency. It was my show. I, you know, I, I, so you wanted this? No, I didn't want to. Like the taser thing, they used, it was a joke around the office. People would say, can we taser him? And I would, ha, 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 that'll never happen in a million years. And then one day, Tom Stanley, 
producer said, you know, you're going to do this shoot with Ottawa SWAT. You're going to do this repelling. You're going to do this cool thing, that cool thing. And then he said, there's an officer there who would really like to taser you. <laughs> and I said, I'm not being tasered on national television. And Tom said, yeah, I don't blame you because uh, uh, nobody's done it. <laughs> and I was like, oh. I was like, nobody's done it? And they're like, no, no one's done it. And then I just convinced myself and then I did it. And don't ever do it. That was the wrong call. And if anyone ever says stop or you'll be tasered, whatever it is you're doing, just stop. That is my advice to you. You thought you could, you thought they would zap you and you'd be able to stand up for a few minutes or a few seconds. Well, I got, I sometimes convince myself that I'm able to do things that I'm not actually able to do. So I knew that tasering was going to be bad. But there was this, like, folk tale of one of the young cadets who was tasered stayed on his feet for, like, six seconds. They're like, he stayed on his feet for six seconds, like he, he was some sort of superhero. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to beat that guy's record. I am not going down. And I had interviewed George Shavalo, the Canadian boxing legend. And he told me that when he went in the ring with Muhammad Ali, and every sports writer in the world said he was going to go down, he just kept telling himself, I'm not going down. I'm not going down. So I channeled Shavalo, and I was like, I'm not going down. I'm not going down. And then the taser hit me, and I went down so fast, I actually broke the record for going down the fastest. What are you actually afraid of? I mean, you do all these things, bungee jumping, getting zapped with the taser, train of death, beard of bees. Oh, I think I'm afraid of a lot of things. I'm not, th I'm not this guy. It was only because of the show. And I gave it my all. And I believed that to be respectful to the people you were covering, you should go for it and give it your all. But I would never jump out of a plane with soldiers. Never. And I did it twice. Did you figure out what it means to be Canadian? You start the book with this and you end the book with this. I don't know many people who have seen more of the country than you. We went to 500 spots. It's amazing. That's a lot. It's amazing. And uh, it's the greatest privilege of my life because it's fine for me to say, oh, everyone should travel more and get to know your country because it would make for a better country. And that's absolutely true. But the reality is, if you're, you're in any capital city in the, in the country and you're sitting around, you're saying, honey, we should take the kids to, to Halifax this summer and drive around the Maritimes and let's explore that part of the world. The answer will be yes, or we could go to Hawaii for half the price. Yeah. It's a very difficult country to travel around. So the fact that I got to travel around as extensively as I did was a huge privilege. And my tongue was a bit in my cheek when I started the book and the show by saying, I'm going to figure out what it means to be a Canadian. Because when I was a kid, when I was like 17, 18, Brian Mulroney actually had a royal commission that traveled the country asking the question, what does it mean to be a Canadian? And I was 17, 18 years old. And I thought, surely to God, what kind of weird country are we that we have a royal commission asking what it means to be a Canadian? And then, of course, they spent millions of dollars, produced 18 phone books, still didn't come up with an answer. So I thought when I got this TV show, I'll come up with the answer. And I w didn't want to rush it because I wanted to get three or four years out of the show. <laughs> and by the end of the 15 years, I was perhaps more confused than when I went out to a Callowit on the very first day mm. of, of shooting. And I never answered the question, what does it mean to be a Canadian? But I realized in hindsight, the only thing I'm sure is I've never, ever wanted to be anything else but. Nice.
What are you going to do now? People miss you on the TV. And I mean, you're out traveling around and, and the book is very, very funny. But what are you going to do now? I like writing the books, but I've run out of runway. There's no more memoir. That's for damn sure. I mean, the book basically ends here in this room with you. There's nothing else to write about. So I have to figure out what that is that I'm going to write about. And um, every week, Jan Arden calls me and says, we should do a show. She's right. So I don't know, but I like the writing. And it's the polar opposite of having a TV show, just going out in the shed and writing all day. It's like the complete opposite, but I enjoy it. We'll look forward to whatever you do next. Rick Mercer, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's Rick Mercer. Thank you. My conversation with Rick Mercer, recorded Friday on stage at Glenn Gould Studio in Toronto. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.